We're going to read from Acts chapter 12. Um, we're going to read most of the chapter, but we'll go from verses 1 through 19. If you've got your phone, you can follow on your phone. If you want, you can follow along up here. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer was made for him by God to the church. No, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly! And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. And he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. And when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. And recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing there. They also said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. We are going through a series on the book of Acts. And the most important lesson from the book of Acts is the thing that the church needs most is the Holy Spirit. It is like the main ingredient for a dish. You can't make omelets without eggs or egg whites. It's the eggs or eggs whites of the church. But there is a fundamental tension when it comes to the Spirit, which is how do we access the Spirit? We've danced around this idea for the last couple of months, and we've never directly handled, well, yes, we need the Spirit, but where do we go to get it? And when you look through the book of Acts and the different stories that we've seen, one thing that we note is the Spirit is unpredictable. It'd be much easier if you could follow the Spirit the way you could follow a person. And every time the apostles put their hand on somebody, suddenly the Spirit fell. But that is not what happens. 
In Acts chapter 10, Peter is speaking to a group of Gentiles, and while he's talking to them, all of a sudden they start praying in tongues and the Holy Spirit falls on them without Peter even recognizing or doing anything to make that happen. The Spirit is unpredictable, has a mind of its own, and in John chapter 3, John compares it to the wind. You hear it, but you can't tell where it's coming from or where it is going. And here we are at that tension. Yes, we need the Spirit to be the church that God is calling us to be, but what can we do to access the Spirit? When you search through the book of Acts, one of the answers that comes out is prayer. Prayer is one of the main ways that God has given to the church to access the Spirit. The word pray or prayer is mentioned more times in the book of Acts than any other book in the Bible. And when you look at every single major event that we've covered, it is always preceded by prayer. When they pick Judas's replacement, they're praying. When the Holy Spirit falls in tongues of fire, they're praying in the upper room. When Peter and James are walking to the temple and they heal a man who had been born lame, they were on their way to pray. When they ask for boldness, they pray. And the room shakes with the power of the Spirit and they're able to testify about who Christ is and what he's done because of this prayer. When Peter asks that God would raise Talitha and Tabitha from the dead, he prays and God responds to their prayer. Prayer is the thing that God has given to the church to access the Spirit. Now, when we say the word prayer, two images instantly pop up into our mind. The first image is idealized prayer, perfect prayer, prayer as we picture it in our minds. And this happens like this. You say prayer, you think of idealized prayer, and you imagine a person who sets their alarm at 5 o'clock in the morning, it goes off, they wake up without snoozing, they're fresh, they're ready to go, the Bible is already next to their bed, they open the, bed, the Bible, they start reading, and God is speaking to them, they rock gently back and forth, they spend about an hour there, and then they just go on about their day because they've had sweet fellowship with God. Another version of idealized prayer, a man is on the street and he needs to be healed and he stops somebody and this person is filled with the Holy Spirit. He prays faith-filled prayers and says, God, heal this person. And all of a sudden, this person comes alive again and is able to walk or whatever. And these are the pictures of idealized prayer that we have in our mind. That's one version of prayer. But then we have um, actual prayer. And actual prayer works like this. You set your alarm five minutes before you wake up. You snooze. Uh, you're already four minutes late if you have the nine uh, minutes news. You're four minutes late, but you say, you know what, I decided I'm going to pray. You start to pray, you close your eyes, and all you can see are the burned-in images of the last thing you looked at on your phone, whether that's your Instagram feed or Netflix. It stays there like those burned images on TV screens. And then you start thinking about all the things that you have to do in your day, and then you say, dear God, and you got, no- <laughs> you got nothing. You have nothing to say. And then you kind of go, oh, this is um, worthless. I don't know why I'm doing this. It's such a waste of time. And there's this huge gap between ideal prayer and real prayer. And it reminds me of uh, my daughter. So during the pandemic, Arlo got really into ballet. She would watch these YouTube clips of Misty Copeland and Sohi Han. And when she's watching these clips, she is watching ballet perfected. These ballerinas are plieing and jeteing and arabesquing and whatevering all across the stage, dressed up in beautiful gowns. Everybody's in perfect harmony. And that was what she thought ballet was. So naturally, we said, we are going to sign you up for a ballet class. <sighs> we sign her up for a ballet class. She goes in. 
And it's not this beautiful set. It's, you know, a room like this. It's kind of dark. The teacher's there, and they're like, okay, let's stretch. And then they stretch. Okay, let's do this. Let's do that. And for five minutes, Arlo is confused, but she does it. And at the 10-minute mark, she starts crying her eyes out, unconsolably crying, and we have to <laughs> remove her from the class. <laughs> so we get her in the car, and we say, Harla, what's wrong? You love ballet. She goes, that's not ballet. <laughs> that's yoga. <laughs> and um, I was like, oh, you sweet girl. We, those are the steps you need to get to that stage, right? But her idealized picture of ballet and real ballet were so far apart that she's like, I don't want to do this. And we signed her up for a different class, and she's fine now. But that same dynamic can happen when we pray. When we have this picture of prayer that it should be this, and when we actually start to spend time getting on our knees to pray, there's such a gap that it's so easy to go, I got other things to do, and it kind of falls out of your daily life. Be that as it may, there are times that will happen in your life where inevitably The only thing that you can do is pray. Your friend will need help, and you cannot give them help financially or with your time. The only thing you can do is pray. You find yourself stuck in a situation, and all you can do is pray, but that dynamic is still there. I feel like a fraud when I pray. I have not been in the habit of prayer. I know my faith is weak. I know I'm only doing this because I'm desperate. How do I handle this situation? And when you look at this chapter, that's exactly what happens. Peter is arrested for the second time. And he is taken prisoner by Herod the king. And it looks like he's about to die. And the church has no choice. They cannot do anything else, but they pray. And when you look at the details about how the story unfolds, we find something amazing. And it shows that even weak faith prayer can be powerful. So with that, why don't we uh, say a quick prayer and then we'll look at the details of this passage. God, we uh, come to this place and there's a lot of uh, like fog or there's a lot of stupor or there's a lot of kind of cobwebs in our hearts and our minds as we come to this place because, I mean, we're exhausted and there's just so much going on um, in our church and even in our personal lives. But like as happens in this story, we pray that an angel would come into this place, shine a bright light, wake us up, and allow us to see how powerful our God is. Allow us to see that he responds to people who are in dark places. He responds to people who don't feel like they're all that they should be. God, shine this light in this place Allow us to be able to walk in the Spirit. Allow us to be able to find encouragement to pray, even if we feel that we are not that good at it. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. So we've been going through the book of Acts, and you can cut up the book of Acts in different ways. One way is to just split it in half. The first half is Peter and the Jerusalem church. The second half is Paul and the Gentiles. And like a card dealer who's shuffling a deck of cards, Luke is interspersing stories of Paul, Peter, Paul, Peter, Paul, Peter, Paul, Peter. And at this stage in Acts chapter 12, the Peter side of the deck is about to run out. And now we move completely into Paul's storyline. So from a narrative point of view, this is the last time we're going to see Peter doing anything of note. 
But from this passage, we're also introduced to the big bad who is Herod the king. And this is the grandson of Herod the Great from Matthew chapter 2. The wise men see a star from the east. They come, they see the king, and they say, King, um, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? Herod is threatened, and this Herod, this Herod's grandfather, ends up killing everybody under the age of two. This is the type of family that he's from. King Herod, in this passage, grew up in the Roman imperial court. He knew all of the emperors. He knew their sons. He knew the future emperors. And as a king, he is representing not just his own power, but the power of the most violent and strong state at the time, but he's also a Jewish king, so he knows he needs Jewish support for everything that he's going to do. And this bad guy, King Herod, does something that even the Pharisees are not willing to do. He starts capturing not just regular Christians, but the leadership of the church and starts putting them to death. In verse 1, we find that he has laid violent hands on the church, and in verse 2, we find he has even killed the apostle James. And when he saw that it made the Jews whose support he needed happy, he also captured Peter. The narrative flow makes you think Peter is about to die. Herod makes you think Peter is about to die. And when you look at where Peter is actually in, the physical details make you think he's about to die. He is in a dungeon stuck in a dark and hopeless place. It tells us that four squads of soldiers were assigned to protect him. These are 16 soldiers. He is currently between two soldiers bound with two chains with two guards outside the door behind an iron gate. And it may be overkill. You're saying this guy is an old fisherman. Why would somebody protect him like this? But remember, this is the second time that Peter has been imprisoned and he had a reputation as an escape artist. He was the Houdini of his day. In Acts chapter 5, he miraculously escaped from jail, and King Herod says, not on my watch. I'm going to make sure this guy stays exactly where he's at. Luke makes you think Peter is going to die. Herod makes you think Peter is going to die. The chains make you think Peter is going to die. And Peter himself, we'll find, thinks he is about to die. He probably thinks, I already used my get-out-of-jail-free card once, and there's not a second chance for me. And we can see that this is how he feels from his reaction. Starting in verse 7, the story starts shifting and it starts getting funnier and funnier. Um, An angel appears all of a sudden. And it said, the angel appears and a light shone in the cell. And when you read between the lines, you can almost kind of sense that the angel is like, this is my chance to be in the Bible. I'm going to come. And then he's there, the light shines. And nobody notices him, right? So what does he do? It says he strikes Peter on the side. And this is something that happens to me about once every three months. While I'm sleeping, somebody will strike me on the side and say, hey, you're snoring. Be quiet. And Arlo has also started uh, coming into our bed every now and again. And she, like somebody else who sleeps in my bed, also strikes me on the side and says, hey, you're snoring. Wake up so that we can go to sleep. So... An angel appears, strikes Peter on the side, and then, if you look at the details, this angel has to tell Peter to do every exact single thing. He says, hey, get up. The chains fall off his hands. Then he says, "Um, dress yourself, put on your shoes, get your jacket, put your jacket on, and follow me. And if you're a parent, you know this very well. This is the exact same routine that you have to do when you get your kid to school. Hey, wake up, put on your clothes, put on your shoes. Get on your jacket. Follow me. And Peter is kind of like this preschooler, and he cannot really 
understand what's going on so that the angel has to do every single thing for him. And why is this the case? The reason that Peter turns into this little toddler is he cannot believe that what's actually happening to him is real. He thinks he is seeing a vision. Now, we live in a world where the lines between the real and the fantastical are constantly being blurred. If you spend any time on social media, you know there are these social media accounts where people have a hidden camera and they set people in these fantastical situations and they watch for true reactions. So the ones that always um, show up in my feed are like this guy dressed up as a nerd, goes onto a basketball court, everyone's like, oh, he can't play, and then he dunks the ball. I don't know why this is the case, but this is also what shows up in my feed. There's this guy who dresses up as a janitor in the gym, and then he starts like cleaning up people's weights who are lifting, like deadlifting like 500 pounds, and then he's skinny, and he goes, oh, can I clean around here? He starts cleaning, and then he starts deadlifting, you know, 600 pounds or whatever, and he does it 10 times, and everyone's like, oh, 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 right? So we live in a world where when you experience something strange, you go, is there a camera? Is somebody, like, taping me? And this can all be traced back to the 1960s with Alan Funt, who invented a show called Candid Camera. And he had this camera, and he would put people in these weird situations, and at the end, he goes, surprise, you're on camera, and he would get their true reactions. Now, this ended up backfiring on him once. He was on a plane, supposed to land in Florida, and while he was on this plane, legit, hijackers took over the plane, went into the cabin, and told the pilot, you're going to land in Cuba. And this is the height of Cold War. This is the height of Cuban Missile Crisis. And everybody on the plane starts freaking out. They go, oh my goodness, we've been taken over by terrorists. And then somebody on the plane recognizes Alan Funt from Candid Camera. And they go, we're on Candid Camera. (laughs) And then they start cheering. And when the hijacker appears from the cabin uh, where the the cockpit, they, they applaud him. They go, great job. You're doing such a wonderful job. And he goes, no, 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 guys, this is real. This is not Uh, me. There's no cameras. Look for the cameras. They go, no, stop, 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 stop it. And they do not believe him until the plane lands in Cuba, surrounded by Cuban soldiers with guns. And then they're so upset at the situation that they actually get mad at Alan Fun. And they go, it's your fault. I told you this wasn't it. We live in a world where this line between reality and what is fantastical is constantly being blurred. And Peter is in that same situation. He has to be told every step because he honestly cannot believe that this is happening to him, that an angel for a second time is freeing him from prison. So let's pause for a second. We know that the church has responded with prayer and said, Peter is in jail. We have to pray. We'll find out that Peter knows that the church is praying, but the person that the church is praying for does not even believe that a miracle is possible. He thinks the best that can happen is a vision. And he is not alone in this. In verse 12, Peter goes to marry John Mark's house because he knows that is where the church is praying. And he knocks on the door and a servant girl named Rhoda comes to the door. She recognizes his voice and she's so excited that she hears Peter's voice that she leaves him outside of the locked door to go tell her friends, Peter is alive. Um, I don't think this has probably happened to any of us, but it's like, um, you know, when a girl gets proposed to, right? And she's so excited. Yes, this is the moment I've been waiting for. And instead of uh, engaging with the person who's proposing to her, she starts calling her friends and texting her friends, taking a picture, and she forgets to say, oh yeah, yes, <laughs> I will uh, marry you. And this is exactly what Rhoda did. She's so excited that Peter is there that she leaves him outside knocking on the door, and um, you know, if, if, 
if I were Peter, I'd be very mad at this. Like when I have like a large handful of stuff and I come into the apartment and I start knocking on the door and nobody answers, I, I get pretty mad. This guy just escaped from jail. Herod is about to kill him. He's knocking on the door and Rhoda goes, <gasps> and then just leaves him, right? So Rhoda goes to the church and goes into the room where people are praying and they're praying for Peter. They're praying, God, Peter is in this place. Do something powerful. Do something miraculous. God, uh, do something. And she tells him, hey, Peter, is released. And how do you think they react? Do you think they go, of course, we've been praying. God loves us. He hears our prayers. Of course he's there. Nope. Do they go, oh, this is great. They start giving thanks. They're worshiping, start giving praise. No, they don't believe her, right? In verse 15, it says that they told her she was out of her mind. They said, your sanity is in question. This could not have happened. The second thing that they say to each other is, okay, if somebody is there, it must be his angel. And in ancient Judaism, they believed every single person had a guardian angel who would go back and forth between you and heaven. And the only time that angel would actually appear was after that person died and would deliver some kind of final message on behalf of that person. So basically what this church is saying, who had been praying for a miracle to happen is, oh, Peter is already dead. It's just his angel that's there. And what we discover here is something miraculous has happened. Peter, trapped in jail, is free. Peter, about to die, has resurrected from an effectual death. And the engine of this miraculous deliverance is not a room filled with prayer warriors who know God's promises and are praying unceasingly. It's filled with people who cannot even believe that the thing that they're praying for has actually happened. It is filled with people who have weak prayers. And there's where we discover this wonderful truth. Even weak prayers are powerful. Even prayers with the tiniest bit of faith are powerful. How does this work? If you look at Jesus' teaching on faith and prayer, it says anybody who has faith the size of a mustard seed can tell a mountain to throw itself into the ocean. Faith, mustard seeds, mo- uh, mountain, ocean. But in our minds, we tend to reverse it and we say, I need to have great faith. I need to have faith the size of a mountain and then maybe God will do this one little thing for me. Jesus' teaching on faith and prayer is all you need is a little bit. An amazing and powerful thing can happen. But the other reason this works is prayer does not get its power. It does not get its fuel from our faith. Prayer gets its power from the person that we're praying to. God is powerful, and he loves people with weak prayers. And we discover one more detail that shows why this works. In verses 1 to 2, you'll notice when is all of this happening? It's happening during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and it's happening during the Feast of Passover. This is a season where God took a band of slaves and delivered them from the most powerful empire in the world. This is also the exact same time, about eight years prior to this, where Jesus himself died on the cross and God delivered him from death. Over, um, we're on spring break right now. So um, during spring break, we went to American Dream Mall, which is the biggest mall I've ever been to. And we had all these dreams in the pandemic. When we get a chance, we're going to go to Bermuda. We're going to go to Aruba. And then somebody came and we didn't have his passport. So we're like, we'll go to American Dream Mall. And (laughs) they have this um, indoor 
a water park. And I was amazed. It's so big. And it was so hot. I really felt like I was at the beach. And they have like this um, like a moon roof where like all the sunlight comes in. And I was sweating like crazy. So I was completely unprepared. But the main feature of this park is a wave pool. And every five minutes, you'll hear like a foghorn go. And then waves start flowing. And people can surf on these waves. People can, you know, ride on these waves. People can crash on these waves. I think a way a lot of us think about prayer is we need to create a wave, like this wave pool. God, I believe in you. Do something great. And we feel like there's all of this pressure on our shoulders to create something powerful. The fact that Peter is rescued on Passover shows that that is not the case. Prayer is not us generating a wave. Prayer is us jumping into a current that God has already started a hundred years ago. God has a pattern in history of listening to his people, delivering his people from sure death into resurrection power. When you pray, it can be weak. When you pray, it can be small. When you pray, it can feel like you're a fraud, and that's fine because the person that you're praying to is already at work doing a powerful and wonderful thing. According to church tradition, Peter dies between 64 and 68, and most likely Acts was written after that. And the way that he died is he was crucified in Rome, and reportedly this is what he said when he was about to be crucified. He goes, I am not worthy to die in the manner that Jesus Christ died, so turn my cross upside down, and he was crucified upside down. That is the last image church history has of Peter, but that is not the last image that Luke gives us. The last image we have of Peter in the book of Acts is Peter knocking on the door of the house. And when he enters the house, he tells the church, hey, even your weak prayers are powerful. And Peter is no hero throughout it all. The man who ran away from God, ran away from Christ at the crow's call, in this situation also does not have faith. That doesn't bother him at all. He goes, God is an amazing God. Even when I lacked faith, even when the church lacked faith, they had this tiny seed and God did something amazing. Good news, church. All of us agree that prayer is important, but it is so hard to pray. And when we pray, the temptation of that guaranteed dopamine hit from our phone is so close (laughs) that it's so hard to just get five minutes to just spend in prayer. But like I said, inevitably and unfortunately, we are being thrust into a season in our life where our friends need our help, we're stuck, all of the resources, all of the money, all of the time, all of the friendships, all the networks that we have are not able to help us in the things that we are about to face. And we have to pray. But when we do that, the natural feeling is, God, I'm such a fraud. (laughs) I have not prayed in such a long time. Uh, but what can I do? i got to pray. There's a story in the book of Mark where a father is praying for his son. The son is demon-possessed. He's mute. He has these seizures. Every time he has these seizures, the demon throws him into fire. And Jesus is close by. So the father goes to Jesus and says, if you can do something for my son, please do it. And Jesus says, if you can, if you have just the tiniest bit of faith, I can heal him. And the man's prayer is this. I believe. Help my unbelief. And Jesus listened to his prayer and healed the boy. This is the message for us. We don't need powerful prayer. You don't need to be filled with faith. You just need 
a tiny bit, a little bit, just a tiny bit of faith, because the God that you pray to is powerful and is already at work doing wonderful things. You're going to be tempted when you pray to stop because you feel like, I'm such a fraud. This church didn't even believe that Peter was at the door and God still answered their prayer. God can use and answer weak prayer. Let's pray. Um, We got uh, communion today. Um, So we're going to slowly prepare for communion. But before we do that, um, why don't we pray for just some of the things that are going on in our life. I'm pretty sure that um, all of us are in situations where um, it's not just like, oh, I know I need to pray like an extra 20 minutes a day, but there are people in our life that we need to be praying for specifically because um, they're struggling. And maybe uh, we're in a situation in our life where we feel like Peter, where we're caught and we're trapped, and it's been years that we've been in this situation. Um, Even if you feel like this doesn't feel natural, this doesn't feel right, let's just spend a little bit of time praying for those specific people, those specific situations, um, and then um, we'll uh, transition to get ready for communion. Um, dear God, we just lift up all of these requests to you, and um, you know our hearts, and you know, um, you know, we lack so much when it comes to prayer, but it's all about you. You are a powerful God. You are a gracious God, and you are a God who has already raised your son from the dead. Resurrection power is available to us, so help us to be a church that prays, and wherever we're at, um, whether we have a hard time coming up with the words, um, whether we're feeling like we're hypocrites, wherever we're at, God, um, Invite us in by the power of your spirit to be a church of prayer who can intercede for one another and cry out uh, for the city. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.